Miracy. Hello, I'm Katie Valentine, host of Soul Savvy Business, and today we're going to share a different kind of episode. You likely listen to Soul Savvy Business because you enjoy being inspired by our guests who are successfully integrating their spiritual and entrepreneurial lives. That's why I thought you might be interested in a brand new show that just launched on Miracy FM Podcast Network. It's called To Lead is Human, and it's hosted by my colleague and friend, Sharon Richmond. Sharon is an executive coach and leadership expert with 30 years experience working with leaders around the world. To give you a taste of the podcast, we're running an episode from that show right here in the Soul Savvy Business feed. I chose this particular episode because Sharon's guest is powerfully transparent. She went through a very difficult time in her life and basically rebuilt herself bit by bit. It wasn't long before she was thriving in every area of her life and people were clamoring to know what she did. Today, she's a sought-after trainer, offering some tools that you might recognize. Enjoy. I checked all the damn boxes, but I am so alone, and I'm so unhappy. I'm burning myself out. And when I started looking at, like, my fears going into the shadows, like sharing it with others, the very thing that would be a nightmare for most people in the workplace— It's the very thing that led me to my dreams. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Shalini Verma. Shalini was named to Crane Magazine's Tech 50 Top Technology Talent. She's a high-energy leader at Google, where she helps to bring products to life through the Global Developer Tools and Frameworks team, where she's won several awards. Shalini is an MIT-trained engineer with an MBA from Harvard Business School. She's had a rich and diverse career with management roles across functions from supply chain and procurement to product management, to machine learning and developer tools. Shalini has described her own progress as taking roles that become more sublime, meaning they move from process to product to leadership. I was very excited to have Shalini come onto the show because she is such a passionate person about the self-awareness necessary for leaders to become excellent in what they're doing and because she's so deeply committed to building an organization inside Google where her employees are fully engaged and feel really motivated. So as you listen to our conversation, here are a few topics I suggest you tune into. One, what was happening that caused Shalini's great skid? And have you had an experience like that? The second thing is, how did she translate what she learned about herself and what she practiced with her family 
into day-to-day workplace conversations with her team members and what was the impact that had on them. Welcome to the show, Shalini. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have our conversation today. So I was wondering if we could start with, Shalini, can you help our listeners understand a bit about your current role at Google and what your team does? Sure. So um, at Google, I lead teams of program managers, and we work with engineering, product management, UX teams to create and evolve developer tools and frameworks. So a lot of what we're doing is helping the developers of all the products we have at Google. You think about it, YouTube, Search, um, Maps, and we're creating and evolving tools that allow that development process to become faster, easier, higher quality. So that's my day job. But I would say a lot of what I do is really about bringing you know, in the leadership itself, high productive teams that create these great products. So that's a lot of the tools and techniques that I play with. That's great. Um, I wonder if we can start. So how would you describe yourself as a leader? Hmm. Good question. You know, I'd say someone that can live true to self more and more, you know, so I don't have a different role. Like I'm the same character at home as I am at work, as I am with friends or family. And so a lot of the masks and facades have kind of diminished and dissolved over time. Um, I would say I'm a leader that embraces like my whole self. So my emotional state, you know, like I'm very comfortably vulnerable. So I can be empathic for that reason. Self-awareness is a really big thing for me. So probably like empathic, you know, kind of attuned leadership style to both myself first and then to those around me. Um, That's probably the simplest way I would describe it. I can imagine that you weren't always like that. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to being a leader? Yeah, sure. So um, I would say, you know, most of my career, so I, you know, I started out, I lived in 13 cities growing up all over the world between the U.S. and Middle East, India. So I was always moving from place to place. I'm a traditional Indian family. So education was a really big theme, really important. So I was always from really early on chasing the grade, like grades, getting good grades and like whatever it took. So I'd work like crazy, working hard. And I have, it was a traditional immigrant family. So hard work, So I checked all the boxes. Good Indian kid. You know, I went to good schools, got good grades, got to a great college, you know, got to Google, got to like the brand, got married, had kids, right? I was checking all these boxes. So it was, you know, that was kind of my journey. And I would say that when I finally kind of crashed and burned completely was when I, about seven years ago, ended up just totally crashing and burning. All the things I'd normally done, you know, I came to Google where there's very accomplished, you know, ambitious individuals. They're all rock stars like I was. So you're kind of a dime a dozen. And I hit rock bottom hard, really hard. And that's when I kind of realized, like when I looked in the reflection of who I was, I mean, when I hit rock bottom, I realized not only was I failing professionally at that point relative to those around me and what I'd been used to getting in terms of reward and recognition. But when I looked around, it's like I had no connection with my kids. You know, I checked the boxes that a parent's supposed to do, you know, enroll them in things and get them good food and blah, blah, blah. But I had no depth of connection. And when I would ask them about their days, I would get one of three words. Okay, good and fine. Anything more than that would be what they would think of as an interrogation, basically. And even though I was reading, I was always reading books about child development and brain development and leadership development. So I had all the big brain of knowledge, nowhere to apply it, because I couldn't even get the door to open. So it kind of started there where I was like, wow, I'm feeling not just professionally, but personally. So it was like my all-time like lowest point. And I basically then, when I started looking in the reflection, I was like, wow, I don't even like who I see. This isn't the person I want to be. That must have been a really hard moment. It was dark. I mean, it was really a dark moment for me where I realized that, what is it that I'm chasing and for what? You know, it really got me asking the questions. Ultimately, I mean, in hindsight, you never wish that on anyone. But in hindsight, that was the best thing that happened to me. 
because I realized like I'd always chased the grade. I'd lost the connection with myself, with my kids, with my family, with others. And it was just this miserable grind to the bottom. So that's how I've always been. You know, I was kind of this kick ass, take names, get shit done kind of a leader, right? It's like badass, you know, like the facade of like, I'm tough. I can work really hard. I can, you know, 100 hours a week or whatever. And I can do an extracurricular and be like the president of the club. And, you know, it was always about those titles and working really hard around the clock. So it started there. And then it was really like, my first goal then at that point was like, I don't think I can do this professionally. I'm just going to coast, I guess, like kind of mull at the bottom of the list here. And let me see if I can lean into my kids. So it really kind of started with trying to experiment with, can I at least develop a connection? I know they're stressed. We just moved to California. You know, so my, uh, let's see, they were seven and nine at the time. My older one was just starting middle school. He was getting bullied. My younger one was so anxious. He was like vomiting every morning before school. And I was like, oh my God, they are super stressed and anxious. And for me, it was nothing. I'd moved a dozen times. So moving was no big deal. But I didn't realize for my family, it was a totally different story. And it wasn't even until that moment that I was like, wow, like I can't even help them. You know, and so it was kind of there that I started. I started experimenting with a bunch of things. I'm like, let me just see what I can try. And finally, the thing that kind of worked, that cracked the nut, was I started tucking them in. Now, they didn't need to be tucked in. They're pretty old. Two boys. I had two boys. But I started tucking them in. And someone I heard was Carolyn Mace, who's this medical intuitive. They can kind of read people's charges, she calls it, in their systems. So she was able to do things like she was working with all these like Harvard MDs where over the phone, she would say, this person has cancer. And they'd be like, no, this person's fine. We just did all the tests. Two weeks later, they'd be diagnosed with cancer. And what she claimed was that she had this ability, she didn't know how, she had this gift to be able to read people's charges. So what, and what she said from all of her work was that if you keep these charges, the emotional reactions, anger, sadness, fear in your system, you don't release it. It will eventually turn into injury, illness, disease, which she was able to pick up on. And now we even know epigenetics. You pass it on multiple generations, this trauma or this charge. So I told my kids that. I was like, it doesn't have to be me. You can talk to your friends, you can go running, you can do yoga, you can talk to me if you want, but just find a way to release these things that happen to you during your day. So it kind of started there. And then it was just a series of experiments and play and trial and error, both in my personal life and in my professional life that led to like so much learning and discovery. Yeah, I can hear the uh, interweaving of the engineering and the business training all coming through in your experimentation description. So what was this like for you? What was this journey like? It was really interesting. So like when I started doing this with the kids, what I said was like, did anything give you a charge today? So I'll tell you a story. Like when I did this with my younger son first, he was like, yeah. So now it's, I'm tucking them in. It's dark. There's no eye contact. So, you know, he's not as self-conscious. I'm just sitting there like kind of tuning in and asking him how his day was. So I was like, did anything give you a charge? He was like, yeah. Like what happened? My brother cheated me. I'm like, tell me what happened. And then he said, we were playing tennis. I beat him. Then his friend came over and he said he won. I was like, why would he do that? He's out to get me. And I could tell he was really charged replaying this story. So I said, it must have been really upsetting. This is one of the things I had like read about and was trying now. It seemed to work. It was like, don't judge, don't fix, don't solve. Just listen, validate. I'm like, let me try that. So, you know, this was trial and error. I was trying these things. And so I'd say like, that must have been really upsetting. Yeah, that must have made you really angry. Yeah, I'm saying basically the same thing in different ways. And I could see the charges coming down as he's venting. His voice is starting to calm. And then once he came back to center, I would say like, what were you feeling? Initially, it'd be like anger. I'm like, where'd you feel it? Everywhere. Then what I noticed over time was he would say, I feel the tips of my ears burning, or I feel a lump in the back of my throat, or I have a knot in the bottom of my stomach on the left side, really specific. And then they would say things like, I feel dishonored or humiliated or, you know, 
angry or what they would be able to label the emotion much more clearly. And then they would even start doing things like he'd come home and say, mom, I have a knot in my stomach. I must be stressed about something. I'm going to go sit down and meditate. So then we started releasing and I was telling stories to them as ways to give examples. And I was releasing these charges. And we started seeing patterns, not just in other people, but in ourselves. So one thing that we started to do was when we come back to center and I could start telling when they were back to center, then I would ask a question about and be able to reflect back on the emotion sensation. Then we would play this game we call Sherlock Holmes, which is like, what do you think was going on for the other person to make them do that thing to you? So I did this with him for his brother. I was like, use your imagination, suspend your disbelief. And is there any other reason you could think of in your wildest imagination that he would do something like that? So he's thinking, he's like, well, it would be embarrassing if my little brother beat me. And he's like, I see his lip quivering. He's like, mom. I was like, what? He goes, I might have done the same thing. And then he was about to start crying. And I'm like, it's all right, buddy. Don't worry. And I was like, how mad are you at your brother? He goes, you know what? I realize it's actually not a big deal. So it was kind of like those kinds of examples that we started to do with the kids. And then what started happening was like, I'd come home from work. And previously, let's say I had a bad day at work. Someone snapped at me or something happened. And I'd be snapping at one of them when I got home, you know, and then they would be thinking like, mom doesn't love me. What did I do wrong? What can I do differently? Or pay it forward. Now pick on his brother. Then his brother yells at his dad. His dad picks on me, right? We're like this reactionary like lifestyle that we're living. Then what started shifting was I'd come home and I'd snap at them. Then they'd say like, mom, what happened at work? And then one of them would say like, let me get you a cup of tea. The other one's put your feet up on the, tell us the story. Tell us the whole story. And it was like, we were telling stories to each other. They became like my counselors. Like they are honestly my greatest teachers, my kids. But basically it started like that. And this journey was amazing. I could no longer have to put a happy face on it. I no longer had to like have all the answers. I could be flawed and emotional and get all the things I chased my whole life, like deep connection with my children, the sense of belonging, having each other's backs. It was incredible. And my husband then would say like, because, you know, they started sharing their darkest thoughts and their greatest fears and their dreams. My husband's like, what are you doing? How come they're telling you all this stuff? Like, tell me what you're doing. I want to do that. So then I started sharing with him. And then all of us started doing this. How did you start? Like, when did you start figuring out how to translate that to the workplace? So the way that it started translating the workplace was through traumas. My husband had shattered his right leg in a ski accident. So he was in a pretty bad place. He's an ER doc. So he had to stop working. And one of my sons said, and we've been doing this probably a year at that point, this sharing of these emotions and processing the charges and, you know, tuning into what was going on for other. And so, you know, we'd gotten into the practice of it. And one of them said, you know, dad's in a pretty dark place right now. He's probably going to say things that are going to create all these charges in us because he's mad and he's scared and he's angry. What if the three of us kind of huddle and like release our charges so we can be clear for dad because he really needs us right now? I was like, wow, let's try that. So we started doing that. I was sharing that with my staff at Google. And one of them was like, wow, I wish we could do that here. I was like, why can't we? Let's try it. So that's how we started kind of all these little experiments in the workplace. So this on the face of it, Shalini, does not sound like the kind of thing that a bunch of engineers would really be necessarily open to. So maybe just for our listeners, kind of help people envision this picture of these engineers that you work with and these folks at this high powered, high achieving organization. What was that? How do you think that happened? I would be very open about speaking about things that were bugging me or that I was stressed about or that were challenging. And I would share experiments. And when they'd fail, I'd share the fails. And so it was like through kind of example of just that my team started to do those things. And then they started to feel safer. And then their creativity and well, like productivity was rising without actually focusing on the work. And so people started to see that and were like more people wanted to join my team. Then even HR was like, what are you doing? Like, why is everyone so happy, you know, on your team? Um, so then they started tuning and they asked me to like teach classes and do podcasts and 
workshops, whatever. So then more people started hearing about it and trying things. It's a little bit like contagious. And, you know, I wasn't, my intent always, you know, and, and it's become more clear to me over time is not to go out there and rescue and fix and impose. But really it's like, I just keep working on myself. And there's something about that. It's like now more than ever, I hear people saying like, wow, whatever you have, I want, you know, and like the way you are with your team, how much you seem to be enjoying your work, how fulfilling, like full of life you appear to be. So I want that. So people come for different reasons. Like sometimes they're like, wow, her team is really productive. They're adding a lot of value. Whatever they're doing, I want more of. Other people are like, she's rising. She's getting promoted. She's like getting really great reviews. Like people like working with her. She's getting all the strategic projects. I want to do that. So it's like everyone had different motivations. So, but it wasn't me going out there and pitching it. I did that forever. That has impact, but a fraction of when I just stopped all of the impressing, trying to impress and impose, and instead just worked on myself. And everything else just started to flow totally naturally from that. It sounds like a really deep dive into self-awareness that maybe you weren't even aware you were starting to take. It's very much like that. I mean, it was like, it's so funny too, because, you know, as I continue down this path, I keep looking in the rearview mirror because I don't actually, I'm just kind of like trusting what's coming up for my intuition, my instincts. And as I clear what I call the, these transducers that used to be caked in mud, all these sensors on our bodies that are picking up signals. As I kept clearing them with all these different tools and techniques, I realized I could trust and honor more and more my intuition. So I don't actually know. I don't always have a plan. I don't prepare a whole lot. It's more about, I move from like how I used to operate, which I would characterize in like reinventing organizations talks about this, predicting control to sense and respond. So I don't have to carry a lot of baggage, do a lot of preparing. I just clear the instrument and then just kind of like be receptive to what wants to happen in this moment. And it's such a much freeing way to live. So essentially, it's like that. It's always looking back in the rearview mirror to realize the gifts and the beauty of the journey that I'm on. And then using those experiments that happens, happenstance, like when I trusted my intuition, I didn't even know what I was doing in the moment. But then when I look back, I'm like, whoa, let me try that again. And that's how I was really discovering more of these experiments. That's really, really fascinating and really inspiring. I'm trying to put myself in the, in the mindset of listeners who might not yet have had that self-awareness journey. And I'm thinking about the ways that ego can color and then really cover up a person in how they lead. And I wonder if maybe you have any reflections about like that stage of your leadership. Like what was that more, is it fair to call it more ego-driven leadership or is that not quite the right way to say it? You know, in my case, I mean, I think that's true probably for everyone. The way I like to characterize it is for me, most perfectly described by the Enneagram, which is a tool I think you're familiar with, a personality test essentially, but it's a pretty powerful tool for kind of understanding the underlying why we think, feel, and do certain things, the underlying motivations and triggers. So I think I would probably characterize it as a more, definitely, I guess you could characterize it as ego-driven, but it's like, as opposed to like my higher self, it's like my worst self, if you want to characterize it that way. You know, the ego is not necessarily a bad thing, but you want it to be an instrument. I almost think of it like, I want to be leading with heart and I want the mind or the ego to be in service of the heart. I don't want to be leading with my mind and my ego and the heart's kind of left behind, which is how I used to operate. Like I would just shut down my heart, no emotion. I got to get stuff done, you know? And so like, let's get stuff done. And I'd be a great planner, organizer, you know, like my mind is like really sharp mind getting stuff done. But what started really shifting for me in my leadership style was realizing the power and the value of acknowledging these emotions and realizing like these sensations. And then over time, as I was clearing it, the superpowers that lie in our bodies that we can use to have far greater intelligence than anything my mind could come up with in its wildest dreams. 
And so it was really that journey for me in terms of like how I was operating. But, you know, I would say that it was ego-driven initially, and it was very motivated by these fears and insecurities that came from trauma, that my previous experiences, my previous trauma, my wiring. And it was really like either replaying those storylines, those autonomic responses that came in, or reacting to something that came up. And like a lot of it for a type three, I'm a type three in the Enneagram. It's all about the facade of being successful, accomplished, reward, and recognition. So I would put out so much energy to maintain the facade of the image and how I looked and what I accomplished and what people thought of me. And if they didn't think well of me, or I perceived they didn't think well of me, I would go to great ends to like try to change that. I'd work all night. I'd go crazy. That would be my response, my fear response, my stress response. And what I started discovering over time was as I healed and as I cleared, then I could start honoring what was coming up and be able to embrace those things and realize those are my shadows. And as I move through those, what I realized every single time, like when I honored what, so even now my ego is not gone. I mean, I need it, but it's taken a bit of a back seat, I would say. And it still comes up. You know, I lose my temper. I get angry. I like frustrated and I honor exactly what comes up. I don't hold back at all. And what I then do is I look back. What was it that triggered me? What's it showing me? Like, what's the reflection that I need to like see? What's the trauma that I haven't healed? Like, is there a wound or something that I need to look at? So that's a little, I don't know if that answers your question. That's a little bit how I think of, you know, processing it with respect to the ego. Yeah, no, and I think it's a great description. And I particularly really like the image of leading with your heart and having the mind and the intellect and the ego support that as opposed to the other way around, which just seems really powerful. Can you give an example or tell, what's that like when you do this with your team at work? I can imagine that a lot of leaders listening here are like, that sounds terrifying. I could never do that. My team would lose respect for me. I mean, all the things that we historically might have rehearsed are in our own minds that get in the way of being what I like to describe as just being more human in your leadership. I wasn't super comfortable with emotion in the workplace when I started, but I would, share, I would say, let's do a check-in. You know, an and Enneagram Prison Project did, does this in the prisons that I was working with them through. And they had this thing from conscious leadership about, are you above, below, or on the line? Your presence. How much presence do you have? And so I started there. I said, hey, guys. I shared a little video of like, what is this? What does it mean to be above or below on the line? And I just said, no obligation, but just share with me where are you, you know, above or below or on the line. And then if you want to share what's going on in your life, you can. And what was so interesting, just seeing people step, like dip their toe in the water and try stuff. And one guy like totally went out on a limb. And he was like, my parents' home just burned down in the fires. My parents are in a really dark place. And he said, they've been in a dark place for the last year, but we're coming up on the anniversary. And they just decided of that, you know, one year since their house burned down, but they just decided that they're going to start a whole new chapter and they're not going to rebuild their home. They're just going to move somewhere else. And you could just see his face like light up when he was saying this. And then the next person, it was almost like contagious. Next person's like sharing something going on with their son who was autistic. The third was like, my father is about to die. And like, here's what's going on. Now, this is not a normal staff meeting. I've never had a staff meeting like that, but it started out and it doesn't always go like that. Like other teams I've had. People aren't as comfortable and they'll just share a little bit. And then I'll set the example. I'll share something. And, you know, I'm not going to share like my deepest, darkest secret in the first session, obviously, but I'll share something that's going on. I didn't get good sleep. So I'm below the line. Or I had an argument with someone that I was working with. Or, you know, I'll share things that are like appropriate, but like starting to share the vulnerability. So that's one way that I tried it. Another thing that I tried was like, and I didn't realize the power of it till later, but it's a simple exercise managers can do is I called it two minutes of silence, you know, and it's like just. Before we start the meeting, just go on mute. I set a two-minute timer, and I invite, there's no obligation, but I invite everyone to just pause in their day for two simple minutes and just tune in. Take some deep breaths if you want. 
tune into your body. If you can, now we know so much more research and the power of that. But I started doing that. Initially, I'd get pushback. People would be like, why are we wasting? We have so much stuff to do. Why are we wasting time on this? One of the guys that said that actually six months later was like, can we add a minute of journaling too? You know, it was just like, so they started <laughs> realizing the power of these things. So, you know, it, it starts with small things like that. So this is one of the harder parts of this kind of discussion is to say, well, what are the business benefits that you've been able to see here? Because I know for a lot of leaders, they're like, yeah, sounds good. Okay. Sounds maybe a little touchy feely, whatever. Oh, those California people. I get that. But if we take away that sort of touchy feely judgment of it, the next question is almost always, so how do you know it's working? What do you see as metrics? What business value is there? Can you share with us some of what you've seen and learned? Sure. So Adam Grant did a podcast that I heard recently with Annie Murphy Paul. Um, and someone who was listening to me, they, I, I tend to talk with my hands even more than my mouth, I think. And so she mentioned this, you know, she was really amused by my, all of the movements when I, when I talk. And so she referred me to it. And one of the things they talked about was this notion of embodied cognition. So in other words, like actually what they find is, and we know this from so much of the interceptive research, that our bodies tune into things and it's a far faster processor of information than the conscious mind. And so it's actually gathering data and processing signals and developing concepts way before the conscious mind is aware. And I'll share a, a bit of research with you around some proof around that. But basically, abstract thought, critical thinking actually happens in the body before it happens in the mind. So what's happening is when you're when actually, they did tons of research around this where they found that people that were moving would actually like be able to do better on tests. Like they even did with kids, like the GRE, I think is the test they did. But they found critical thinking, the ability to comprehend abstract thoughts or, you know, complex concepts was higher when people actually moved. And what happens is they found that even fidgeting was actually the body's way of processing information before it became conscious. And they called it gestural foreshadowing. I'm like, wow, that's a lot sexier than fidgeting. You know, so the research that they mentioned in this book and that I actually reached out to the researcher coincidentally well before I read this book was Sarah Garfinkel at the University of uh, College London. And this research study that she did, so it was an article that I read a year ago called Listening to Your Heart Might Be the Key to Conquering Anxiety. And I'll summarize in a nutshell the research. So basically... We've always assumed that the way things work is you see the snake, you get scared, your heart starts racing. It turns out, thanks to this body of research, the way it actually works is you see the snake, your heart starts racing, and then you get scared. The conscious mind is the last to know. And our bodies have millions of sensors in our guts, in our hearts, in our skin that are picking up millions of data points, processing it. And the question is, can you access that? And the way I like to think about it, it's like we have these transducers. So there are all these transducers. And if they're caked in mud from trauma and experiences, the signals aren't going to be as clean but you're still going to get more data if you're tuning into it. And then all these techniques we talked about, even this bedtime routine I talked about, are ways to clear these transducers from the caked mud that's in them. And you get clearer and clearer signals. So what she did in the studies was she had one trial with, um, it was a clinical trial with 120 autistic individuals. And they were, she basically had them do this thing called the heartbeat count exercise, where she used a pulse oximeter to measure their heart rate. Then she asked them to estimate it without measuring anywhere on their body. And most people can't do it. They're like, I don't know, I'll guess. Then she'd have them do some light exercise for a couple of minutes. So their heart's pounding. And then basically, it may not be in their chest. People always assume it's in the chest. It may be the temple under the chin and the arm. But the point is it's pounding. So you can feel it. Then their estimate would get better. Then she'd have them do it again. And they may say, I still can't do it. Then she'd have them do light exercise, et cetera. So over the course of six sessions with these 120 individuals, their interceptive accuracy, the difference between their estimate and the pulse ox, kept improving. And their anxiety was correspondingly dropping to the point where a third of them fully recovered from their anxiety. And a year later, with no additional intervention, were still recovered from their anxiety which is groundbreaking in the field of mental health 
and artistic research. And she's now in the final rounds of getting a really large grant for that work. And then the second study that was even more interesting, anxiety is, of course, relevant to managers, leaders everywhere, especially with the pandemic. The second study, she was a group of traders in the London Stock Exchange, and she measured their interceptive accuracy the same way, had them estimate and compared it to the pulse ox. And she didn't have them improve it. She just measured it. And those that had the highest interceptive accuracy had the highest P&L. In other words, they were making the best buy-sell decisions. And if you think about these traders, there are people that are making rapid buy-sell decisions with tons of information like ticker tape, whatever, flying around. And people would describe those individuals as having really good gut instinct. So what she's claiming is she discovered the science of gut instinct or intuitive decision-making. And the way it works is, to bring it home now, is our conscious minds can't possibly process that much information and that much time to make a buy-sell decision for these traders. But the subconscious, the body, is like a supercomputer. 40 million bits a second, it's processing information, generating the algorithm, and has the answer. For the first time that I've seen it, in all the time I've been playing around with this in the workplace and at home, there's a direct connection between self-awareness or mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, tuning into your body, breathing, you know, like some of the meditative mindfulness techniques, and reduction of anxiety, increase of empathy, you know, improvement of business decision-making skills, and P&L with a metric measurement or a measurement, a process to improve it, and clinical research to back it up. So when I shared this with the company, I mean, everyone I shared it to was like, oh my gosh, when do we get started? Like, how do we do this? Because you think about leaders, as you're having, you know, you rise, your scope's growing, you've got to make more decisions with more information and less time. So those that do this well, our guess is, we're going to start testing for this, is that they have high interceptive accuracy, but now we can train people to do that. So in terms of like, back to your question, what business metrics did I see improving? When I have people start... And I even tried this actually as recent as yesterday. I ran a session with a group of engineers where they wanted to like experiment with some of this stuff. They'd heard a little bit about it. They wanted to improve like the insights that they're gaining in the team. How do you improve insights? You know, how do you have better decisions in an organization? Now, most organizations like Gary Klein's is cognitive psychologist who I recently listened to. Fascinating stuff. He talks about a lot of companies, you want to reduce errors, increase insights. But a lot of companies focus on reducing the errors. And so you lose innovation, creativity, because you're so focused, you're risk averse, you're so focused. But really what you want is you want to increase the number of insights also. And how do you do that? And so when I tried this exercise, I had them, these engineers, I am like, okay, are you guys willing to like, you know, try something? So I want you to jump around for a couple of minutes, come back and then tune into your body and we'll do a body scan. And then we sat down, they started having a conversation. And then what I started noticing, and, I, and the engineering director that I was leading this for notices too, suddenly... They were sharing things like, one guy said, when I get really stressed out, how am I going to use these tools? Suddenly they were having this conversation amongst themselves and getting vulnerable and sharing and like tuning in. I was like, whoa, can you see the difference in the tone? And then the insights they were getting around the business problems then was increasing. So what I've noticed is the insights go up, there's better decision-making, there's greater productivity, there's more creativity, well-being. Now, if you think about if you want really productive, creative individuals and they're stressed out and they're anxious, they're in fight or flight more often. You're, not, you're, getting, you're losing cognitive function. They're going to be more reactive. They're going to make bad decisions. They're going to fight. There's going to be more conflicts, more personnel issues, more sick days. So you get tons of very concrete benefits. And we know this from so much of the research now, that if you can reduce anxiety and you can improve insights or decision-making, that's totally relevant to the business. And that's what you're seeing in your own group that you lead, as well as in the groups that you're helping discover this? Yes, exactly. That's really fascinating. It makes me think, Shalini, about all the new kind of newly publicized information on building psychological safety and how to help people in organizations feel less concerned about sharing their true thoughts or their criticisms that they have, but they've shielded before. And one of the things that 
I think stands out at least to a lot of the companies that I work with is this idea of becoming a little bit more failure tolerant. And they get frightened because failure is definitely not what we want in business. We're, we're not so keen on failure, but we've learned from design thinking, the idea of like fast failing. And now we're learning from the psychological safety literature that faster cycle exploration can lead to greater insights. So I can see the connection between what you're describing and let's say other streams of thought and research out in the world. It's actually a really, I'm glad you brought that up. There's a book that I read, Creativity Inc. I think it was the founder of, or the president of Disney and Pixar Animations wrote this, Ed Catmull. One of the things he talked about was the way he started generating more blockbusters. That's what his book was all about, was creating this feedback loop. Now it sounds pretty basic, but what he discovered in there that I've taken into the workplace and really found useful was this fear of failure and feedback. Now here's the thing, what ha- he noticed a couple of really interesting things. One is, so they were critiquing the film, but what happened is for these filmmakers, that's like calling their baby ugly. They don't want to hear critiques about their film. So one of the things he helped them realize was there's this difference. We're critiquing the film, not the filmmaker. If you too closely associate with your ideas, when they're criticized, you view that as a personal attack. So how do you loosen the grip of that? The other way to think about it is like, why is there such a fear of failure? Like we have it from so early on in childhood, right? With grades and like the way that we operate and what happens if you fail and like the lack of tolerance for failure. Like if you've had bad experiences with that, but if you think about it, what we really want to do, you can't remove the fear of failure. Like when I fail, I fail pretty regularly. I invite that as a gener- like necessary part of the process. But it's not like I feel good about it. I go into a dark hole for a little while, processing what happened and feeling terrible and honoring all the emotions that come up. But, and I found that the, the more I lean into that, the more I'm able to process and integrate what happened, learn from it, heal whatever wanted to show up in that moment, and then come up even more energized to try another experiment. So I almost start thinking to myself, and they talk about this in Creativity Inc., as a scientist. You want to have a hypothesis, run a set of experiments, if and when they fail, it's just more data. You can reform your hypothesis, run a new set of experiments. We talked about like, think about learning how to ride a bike. Okay, this is actually really interesting. When you learn to ride a bike, you don't tell a kid like, twist your right ankle and then move your right foot and blah, blah, blah. How do they learn? They fall down, they get up, they implicitly learn. And if you look at like neurotrauma, so there's a woman, Lise worthen at Ohio State University, dancer who became a professor of physical rehab. And if you look at all the latest in neurotrauma, spinal cord injury, One of the things they discovered in that was that when people start moving in ways that get them to flow states, like dance form, like you're listening to music, you may notice this, or people start moving and you can get them into these flow states where the body is moving in ways that you could never explicitly instruct. It's almost like the body has an intelligence of its own. And what they found in neurotrauma was they were getting far greater healing in these patients that had spinal cord injury and strokes and so on, like nerve damage, when they were getting to these flow states and moving of their own accord implicit learning instead of explicit instruction. The most complex tasks are far better learned implicitly than explicitly instructed. And this, I think, is very true in leadership. And this is something that I bring into the workplace, which is if we can get people to start tuning into their own intuition, their insight, getting them into safe flow states, they will have the greatest development, learning, healing than anything I could ever instruct from the outside. So think about this. As a manager, this is so empowering. I don't have to have all the answers, just like a parent. Same analogy. I suddenly become the catalyst I like get out of the way and I enable them to find their own path and their own healing and their own discovery. And even if I tell them what to do, this is what I've discovered. You tell them what to do and they copy what you did. They're getting a fraction of the insight you got because this is what you needed in your moment in your journey. And when people start tuning into that for themselves, they discover far greater like benefits from it than anything explicitly instructed. So this is a lot, I think, about what we need in the leadership, in the, you know, in terms of management and leadership. Which the story you were telling about kind of reflecting and learning 
it's reminded me of an experience that I had working with a bunch of basic scientists at a pharmaceutical organization. It was all the medical leadership of this very, very large global pharmaceutical company. And they were critiquing each other's research. It was very personal and it was very negative and very aggressive. And over the period of time that we were able to help them look, same way that you described Ed talking about Pixar, if they could look at the research from a little different perspective, if they could get back away from it and detach themselves, they could give each other much more constructive feedback on the basic science design, on the research they were doing. It was really mind-boggling how quickly they were able to shift the way they looked very concretely at their portfolio review as a bunch of very senior physician researchers and shift and make some better decisions about how to evolve that portfolio of basic science products. They weren't even really products for the market yet. It was really just the very basic science piece. It was fascinating and that I hadn't thought about that in quite a while. So that's the memory that came to me. The other thing that you were describing about fidgets, I just came back from an offsite with a client company that I've been working with. And I had asked the organizers in advance, so who's got the toys for the tables? It was 100 people in a room, first time they've been together in three years. And they all looked at me like, what? And I was like, oh, never mind. I'll bring those. So I ordered, you know, a bunch of fidgets and put them out on all the tables. And this meeting, I'm not saying the fidgets are the reason, but the difference between putting the fidgets out on the table and the level of conversation engagement, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, was very much more engaging. So I'm a big fan of that physicality and including movement, even if it's really small movement in business meetings where there are a lot of decisions that need to be made. Just that small thing of a spinner or a, something stretchy that you can pull on, it just does seem to have a really liberating effect on how people think and what they're willing to talk about. So yeah, two great memories that popped to mind as you were describing this. So just to go way back into sort of the focus, the title of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And I'm wondering, what does this mean to you personally as a leader? Mm, what a good question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is about it connecting in our humanity and realizing how much common ground, like in our hopes, our fears, our dreams that all of us have. So a lot of it for me has been so much of a focus on the facade and what's on the surface. How much do I make? And what's my title? And what's my grade? And how well am I doing? And am I better than you? And right, all these things that we might characterize as ego-driven, like you talked about, on the surface. And we can even fight about those things. You know, that's where there's scarcity. Only one person gets the title role. Everyone else loses, right? This win-lose kind of situation. What I started discovering as I was like healing these traumas or clearing these charges or practicing these techniques, tapping into my intuition, what started naturally happening was my fears were diminishing, my insecurities were diminishing. What I projected on other people was diminishing. Now I could suddenly hear them. I could relate to them. I could find empathy because I had it for myself first. And so inevitably, you start seeing people as like reflections of yourself. Like, I remember feeling bad like that at some moment, even now in my life. So suddenly it's like, I just felt my heart open more and like connect with other people. It's like, it takes away a lot of the layers and the masks that we often wear. And it just allows for a connection. Something that I started playing around with recently was what if we could get people to tap into this interceptive research that is so well-established now that we know if you just tune into your body, move like the fidgets you talked about, start tapping into that intuition and the in increasing the insights, then it's like, one, we can get to deeper, more systemic issues and opportunities. And two, 
Can we create a space where we start to honor that? Maybe suspend our disbelief. Maybe just an experiment to entertain other perspectives. My theory of like, what, and what I've started seeing is there's a lot more common ground when you start getting one or two levels below the surface in terms of what we have in common, in terms of how we're feeling. Like we're all in the same boat. We're in this together. So the thing that we're doing now, for example, is maybe we can loosen the grip of the outcome and getting it exactly right so everyone's happy with it. Because if you believe it's a culture of experimentation, iteration, and learning, then it's just a simple data point in a point in time. It's not the end-all, be-all description of who we are, what we are. And instead, what if we could go through this journey feeling a little more connected to each other and understanding other perspectives and feeling like we're not alone? Like, that would be progress. But that's really like what I think, when I think what does it mean to lead, you know, to lead is to be human. It's really like, how do we start bringing this into the day-to-day and bringing our, like, the fact that we're all human, we're all connected in terms of, like, the simplest of things, right? We want to feel safe, loved, and enough. Ultimately, everything we're doing, our egos and our, you know, everything that we're doing is in an effort to get these three things. The other thing that comes in my mind that I, I wanted to share was, so I've injured every joint in my body, either in a ski accident or a car accident or some act, knees, necks, back, like, you name it, I've injured it. So as I was getting older, I was having more and more pain. And one physical therapist that I work with actually introduced these yoga balls to me, which is basically like a self-massage. I would find the knots in my body. And the thing that was so powerful for me was the fact that there's fascia. I learned about the fascia and it connects our whole bodies. And it's like, so I could have pain in my neck because of a knot in my calf, you know, and it's pulling out all the fascias, pulling. So of course, if I just work on the neck, it's going to keep coming back because the knots are in my low back or in my calf. So I started hunting for, once I started discovering it, I got off painkillers. I mean, I was taking so many painkillers, I ended up with an ulcer. But I stopped taking painkillers because I was able to remove the pain with just removing these knots. And when I think of leadership and organizations, what I discovered was the same thing. If you go to the sources of pain and suffering in an organization and you don't run from it, you don't try to, I don't want your best to make them brighter. That's what every leadership development program is all about. I want your worst. Give me your troublemakers, your misfits. You know, (laughs) there's a song that's coming up. But like, give me the folks that are causing the most toxicity and pain. And I've seen this, witnesses for myself. When we go in there and work with them and hold space and hear them and like support them and make them feel valued and like appreciated, safe enough and loved, they're like diamonds in the rough. They're the people that become the expanded states of consciousness that like lead everyone else. It is incredible. So what I've noticed, the system heals when you go to the places of the most pain and suffering. And I think that applies to organizations too. So when I think about what does it mean to lead is human, it's that kind of thing. What does it mean to be human? Like to go to people that are in pain, to have compassion, first for ourselves and then for others. So it is very much how I like to lead. Yeah, I can tell. And it seems like it's really been working for you, not just in your own groups, but so much so that, I mean, your job is not to be a trainer over there, but it seems like a lot of other leaders have been coming to you and asking, you know, can you help this happen in my group too? So it brings me to maybe a good place to wrap up. And that is, I do know from our prior conversations that you are very passionate about leadership. But I did, as I was getting ready for our conversation today, I read that at one time you co-developed a program called Awakened Leadership. So in wrapping up, whether it's from that program or something else, if we have a listener who wants to know, okay, I might buy this. I'm ready to experiment a little. What could I try first? Where would you suggest people start if they want to also build workplaces that are more fully human? It all starts with self. You know, I think the greatest learning for me is that all of the progress I've made as a leader, which has been exponential over the last few years, as I focused on myself. So the first place I start, man, cut yourself some slack. We're so hard on ourselves, you know? Like you might do, there's a great book, Untethered Soul talks about this, but it's like, 
If you were to think of like the way we talk to ourselves and embody that as a roommate, how would you speak to your roommate? You would never say the kind of things we say to ourselves. And it's like, how would you speak to a child or a little brother or sister? You would never say the kind of things we say to ourselves. So it's like, I think the first place to start is just, man, give yourself a break. Like there's so much beauty and there's so much intelligence. And any view that varies from that is because of the charges and the lenses and the layers. And as we start to heal that, you will see the magnificence that lies within. And then that naturally will start to shine. Your vibrational frequency will rise. People will be drawn to you. The things that you want will resonate. The signals you pick up are going to be more resonant to the people around you. So you naturally become an instrument, a vehicle for like creating safe spaces and leading. There's nothing to actually consciously do at that point. It's just to be. What a lovely place to end our conversation. So Shalini, where can listeners find out more about you and the work you're doing in this arena? There is a LinkedIn profile. So I welcome messages, ideas, insights. If people try things, I'd love to hear about it. I've been getting thousands of messages. So it's just people who are starting to explore and experiment. So I would love that. So if they just search for my name, Shalini Verma, S-H-A-L-I-N-I-V-E-R-M-A, they can find me. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing. Please keep listening as I share some next steps you can take on your own leadership journey. I'm sure that you heard how open Shalini was about her entire journey and how organically it unfolded only because her colleagues at work started to notice the differences on her team. People wanted to join her team. There was a lot of back-channel conversation about how great the team was doing. She was getting invited to speak places. She was being offered new projects that were desirable. And her peers were the ones that came to her and said, can you please teach me what you're doing? And that to me is one of the most important aspects of the work that she described. Shalini is convinced that bringing emotions into the workplace will yield not only better team functioning and greater engagement, but also better performance of the business. And she shared a number of references to how you can see the relationship between emotions and increased profit and loss. So Shalini talked about two or three things that I think are very important for you to consider in your own leadership life. The first is invest in your own self-awareness. And you got to hear how she discovered what was happening with her and how her own emotional fluctuations were affecting not only her family members, but eventually her team members. Two more things for you to consider. The first is somatic awareness. Leading requires making decisions with limited information and often under great time pressures. But it isn't just a head activity. How can you get access to all the information from your body, heart, and soul? What Shalini pointed out to us is that when you can feel in your body where the emotions are and what the sensations are you have when you're in relationship with others, you can use that information to tap into your intuition and help you make faster, better decisions. The last leadership lesson Shalini offers is to lean into the difficult. If you want to accelerate your own progress as a leader, to the harder people, to the more difficult emotions, to the difficult conversations and situations. If you can do this with curiosity and care and without judgment, you will be amazed 
at what you can learn and how you can accelerate progress in your organization. So here's your practice opportunity. Watch yourself as you go through the next week and notice what are you avoiding. Is there a conversation you should be having? Is there a person you're avoiding? Are you having feelings that you're not acknowledging and pushing out of the way? Your challenge is to lean into those, state them to yourself, give them a name, and see what the message for you is behind that. As you're observing yourself, pay careful attention to what's behind your avoidance. Once you can identify that, you'll have a key for how you can start making a change in your own leadership. If there's something difficult in your work life, lean into it. Don't avoid it. And when you do that and look behind the difficulty, look behind the emotions, look behind the conversations, try to do this with curiosity and care and without judgment about self or others, then you can discover what is behind your avoidance. Anytime you as a leader can take a faster action with more confidence, you're on a better track. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Our executive producer is Danny Eaney, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you like the show, please star us and give us a review and tell your colleagues about us as well. It really does help out. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human.